0: For the sake of time, we need to jump into the scripture, so let's go now to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to be examining the fifth out of ten plagues that God pours out onto the Pharaoh and the people and the land of Egypt in order to make himself known and to communicate his will. And for the sake of context, because last week Dr. Chitwood was with us from the International Mission Board, we weren't in the book of Exodus, I just want to back up a couple of verses into chapter 8 for the sake of our reading. So if you're using a scripture journal this morning, we're on page 38. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 31, just get a couple verses of context. Because the opening words of chapter 9 are then. Well, we need to know what happened before the then so it can make sense. Here we go. Exodus chapter 8, verse 31. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. He removed them from Pharaoh's servants and from his people. Not one fly remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then, here we go, verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, who is the God of the Hebrews. God is using his name here again, where we see the Lord. Remember, that's Yahweh, that's his personal name. Say to the Pharaoh, Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 2, For if you refuse to let them go, and you still hold them, then look. Verse 3, The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, specifically the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds of goats, the flocks of sheep. Interesting to me in verse 3 that Yahweh says you're going to get the whole hand. You remember two plagues ago, the magician said, surely this is the finger of God. I think God knows what he's doing here. There's a little bit of word play going on. He's like, if that was one finger, you've got to get all five, so you better buckle up. Verse 4. But the Lord, this is amazing, we saw this happen in the last plague when Tyler preached about flies. The Lord Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel, God's people, and the livestock of Egypt. So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. God's going to just protect the land of Goshen where the Israelite people live. Why? Well, because he loves his people, yes, but so that he can show that this is a miracle. This is not a random sickness. This isn't just a, a set of mad cow disease that randomly blew in on the wind. This is God specifically doing what only he can do. He is using his divine scissors to cut out around the land of Goshen and set his people aside to keep them safe. Verse 5, God goes on to set a time, even. He puts a date on this thing for the Pharaoh so that he can't get confused and think this is just some scientific phenomenon or natural disaster. He says, tomorrow, Yahweh will do this thing in the land. Verse 6, we can assume the Pharaoh did not bend his knee to Jesus yet again, but instead resisted, and so the next day, Yahweh did this thing. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one Of the livestock of the people of Israel died which frankly for a a nation of people about a million and a half strong at this point in the life of Israel probably every day one cow died from natural causes so God is choosing to preserve and delay the natural process of death in order to demonstrate none of my people's livestock will die not even the ones that are old and should have all of your livestock will die even the young ones who are healthy and should not Verse seven Pharaoh doesn't believe it he doesn't think this is real check out what he does. He sent, in other words, he sent a messenger, people on his behalf. I think of this as kind of his public relations team. And behold, it was true. Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. It wasn't enough for him. We're halfway there, five plagues in, and Pharaoh still resists God. We've arrived at the halfway point of God's wrath against Egypt. I've used the word picture for you of a boxing match. This is the middle kind of space between rounds where both fighters go back to their corner. One of them beat, bruised, bloody. His trainers, his people telling him, stop, don't fight anymore. Step back, he's going to kill you. This isn't going to work for you. The other fighter feeling good, doing well, benefiting from his power, his strength, who he essentially is. In the one corner, Pharaoh refusing to bend his stiff neck though God is now wailing on him. You see, God's been bothering the Pharaoh up to this point. He's been been bugging him, literally bugging him, okay? Stinging insects, swarms of flies, frogs in his bread bowl and his bed, okay? These are really frustrating things that are annoying. But this is the first moment where God causes irreparable damage to the people of Egypt. God didn't go all the way here at first. He didn't start like this. He doesn't come thundering out of heaven with his long white beard slinging... uh, Lightning bolts down on his people. He is slow and careful and gentle, and he ramps up the severity of his responses to sin as we, humans, continue to demonstrate that we don't care. We just don't care. It doesn't hurt that bad. We don't care. If you're a parent to a child, you've seen this happen, where your kid begins to figure out the loopholes in your discipline process, and they begin negotiating with you, and you'll say, I need you to do this, and they'll say, well, what's going to happen if I don't? Right? They want you to go ahead and play your cards, so they can decide, is it worth it or not? Do I want to rebel or not? This is the attitude, the posture of Pharaoh. And it's not an accident that Pharaoh's been set up this way. God took credit for Pharaoh's hard-heartedness way before Moses ever came back to Egypt. If you remember the early chapters of this book that we worked through together, God has invested the authority and the power into Pharaoh He has encouraged and cultivated Pharaoh to the point that Pharaoh's natural narcissism has now blinded him to the fact that he is willingly stepping into the arena of combat with the living God. It takes a special kind of crazy to think that you can take down the God of the universe. It's the only way we can make sense of Pharaoh's actions. And in the midst of all this, if this is a tug of war, the rope is the people of Israel. From Pharaoh's perspective, he owns these people. We have a category for this, unfortunately, in all of human history. We know what it's like to see men take ownership of others. It's always dirty, it's always awful, it's always wrong. But it's also always the fruit of deep-rooted narcissism, of a system that elevates a person over everybody else and invests in them power and worth and glory that is really only due to God. So of course Pharaoh behaves this way. From his perspective, the people of Israel are legally his. There are laws in his land that protect his right to oppress and abuse these people. They are cattle to him. In some ways, I believe God is making commentary on who the cattle really are with this plague. He is setting his people aside. He is elevating them over and above the Egyptian people, while Pharaoh cannot imagine that anybody in Israel has any value or worth to offer him aside from the work that they are able to do in in the slave pits. Legally, they are the property of Pharaoh. He keeps them pinned in the cities of Goshen, a region that the Egyptian people have never valued. At the end of Genesis, we hear them sort of scoff at Jacob and his sons who want to live there and farm sheep. But from God's perspective, which is really the only perspective that matters, Israel belongs to him, and so he demands their unconditional release. Over and over again. He doesn't change his terms. He doesn't bend. He's not interested in negotiating with or compromising with Pharaoh. God will do whatever he has to to set them free. The goal of the Exodus, the undercurrent of what's happening in this book, is that God, Yahweh, is becoming an experience for his people who he has always been in character. This is why it was important for Jesus if we can move forward to the New Testament. It's why Jesus has to be obedient. Jesus can claim divinity. He can claim righteousness. He can claim purity. But if he doesn't walk it out, we don't really know if he is that way. We already have a bunch of other religious systems in our world with men who claim to have never done anything wrong. We live in a world where our modern-day religious leaders oftentimes get exalted to a position where we assume they cannot fail. And then when they topple, we eat them alive. So it's good and right for God to not just tell us who he is, but to show us that he's truly who he says he is. That's what's happening in Exodus. Yahweh setting a global stage, preparing Pharaoh, lifting him up so that he can knock him down to demonstrate his power this is what God is doing so my question when I read these verses is why kill the cows what did the cows do right this is a fight between God and Pharaoh what did these horses hurt anybody I don't know if you're like me the cows I can deal with right I like steak Uh, the sheep the goats not a big deal they seem kind of dumb you know, they, they'll just drown themselves if you leave them in the rain, they're like turkeys in that way. Like, but the horses, this is like a pet category animal for me. So I'm going to tell you a story today that is not going to make you like me more. I'm just going to warn you. <laughs> on the front end, uh, this story begins in Mexico, as many of my stories do. You've, you've been here very long, you probably feel like I've said that a lot of times. But I was in high school, I was on a mission trip to Mexico, not a great recipe to mix young, pubescent students with too much freedom in a place where they can't speak the language. But I was there with some friends. And we were uh, eating street tacos in this particular instance, which we often found ourselves doing in Mexico. Uh, Back in 2005, the value of the Mexican peso was only about one-tenth of the US dollar. And so you go to Mexico with 20 bucks, And suddenly, you feel like a millionaire. I mean, any time the van would stop for anything, to get gas, for somebody to go to the bathroom, there's a group of us that are just like out in the street looking for a taco stand. we got to get tacos. we got to try more tacos. So something had happened. We're taking a pit stop, or maybe we wandered away from the group because we weren't really good listeners at that time, like most teenagers. But we're eating tacos. And I remember we're sitting on the curb of this street. We each have two or three in our hands. And this time, something was different about the tacos, They still had the diced white onion. You know what I'm talking about? The fresh cilantro, the wedge of lime, the handmade corn tortilla. Oh, yeah. uh Uh-huh. I love this stuff. Okay? But the meat was weird. It was, like, gray colored, and it was tough. It still tasted like meat. Like, I wasn't, I didn't think we were, I don't know. I was like, this is just weird. So not, like, overcooked, just the wrong texture. I remember looking at my buddy who placed the order for us, and I was like, what is this that we're eating? And he was, like, threw a mouthful of taco. He's like, oh, I think they're, like, I think they're called, like, cowboy tacos, is what the sign said above the, above the taco stand. Like, I don't know, maybe they cook them over an open fire or something. And I was like, ah, that sounds authentic to me. That's cool. Okay. I don't know. So I kept eating, but I couldn't shake the feeling that something was actually wrong with what I was eating. So I got up and I walked over to the taco stand, which, by the way, had no line, which was really weird. Should have been a hint to me. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm eating. I'm reading down through the menu, and all the pictures look normal to me. So I started reading the words out loud to my friends that are sitting maybe 15 or 20 feet away on the curb. And I get to a word that I don't know, and I say, hey, guys, what does caballo mean? And the same friend who earlier, like, who had ordered them, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was talking about. That means cowboy. They're cowboy tacos. While he's talking, another friend who knows Spanish, (laughs) because we don't, uh, that's maybe a couple feet down, he just turns white as a sheet when he hears me say caballo. And he gets up and he starts to like spit his tacos out in the street. He's like wiping his tongue off with his hands. He's through his retching. He's like, caballo does not mean cowboy. Cowboy is caballero, or like horseman. Caballero, horseman, comes from caballo, which means horse. And it was right then that I realized three things. I realized why the tacos were not very expensive. I understood why there was no line. And I realized why the meat was the wrong texture. I was eating a horse yeah that's how I felt and I still feel that way and it's been a decade okay <laughs> and now you hate me right some of you want to leave I get it your horse people they're like your favorite thing you might even pick them over your spouse some days of the week not every day But there's something about a horse that's a little more personal to me. The reason I tell you that story is because when we read this, we see our felt cutouts of one sheep and one goat and one horse, and our teacher in our first grade Sunday school class flips them all over so we know that they're dead, and then we move on in our story, right? But the lived experience is horrifying. For the people of Egypt who have raised these animals... Whose subsistence, their economy, their ability to trade and sell and to create any kind of dairy product at all, the skins of these animals when they die become clothing for these people. And they go out into their field one morning and they're just dead. They're just bloated, their feet are in the air, there's flies all around them, and it's like crisis mode. There's not enough Egyptian veterinarians to get to all of these farms. And on top of that, animals don't just have barnyard presence in Egypt. They stand in temples. They represent gods in the ancient Egyptian world. This is God's judgment on these people. It's not just a story to teach us to be careful or God might judge our sin. God is making war on his enemies who have oppressed his people. And this is fair play when God is going after a group of people who have dehumanized his children for hundreds of years. That's the only context in which this makes any sense at all. Yes, the economy suffers. People go hungry, okay? With all the cows dead, I'm sure the Texas Roadhouse in downtown Cairo went out of business, right? I mean, there were consequences of this. But as as has been the case in every other plague on Egypt, God is actually going after the gods of Egypt. He's attacking them. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses writes out the history of God's people as they left left Egypt in the Exodus, and he says that God made war on the gods of Egypt. That's our context for these verses. Specifically, the motif of the cow, the bull's horns, the cow's udders, the body structure of the animal, was so important to the Egyptian people that they have two primary deities in their pantheon who bear the image of the bull and the cow. Namely, Apis and Hathor. Apis is a god of masculinity to the Egyptian people, of physical prowess. Apis is the crossfit god in ancient Egypt, okay? He's the god of social and sexual dominance, to be frank with you, of strength. Apis is seen as the embodiment of any man that can take what he wants from anybody because he's stronger than them and he knows that he can do what he wants. Hathor, on the other side, is a feminine goddess, She's a goddess of glamour and physical beauty, of being able to get what she wants, not by forcing it, but by manipulating others with her appearance, her sexual sway over men. When God goes after the livestock of Egypt, he is demonstrating his dominance over human sexuality. That's the idol that's in play today. And I know for some of us that may feel like a stretch, right? The cow thing, not a big deal for you and I. Like, not a normal part of a bachelor party for them to walk a bull out at some point. But in ancient Egypt, that's what was going on. The reason I think that's true, and I'm just going to do a little bit of commentary here on the culture that we live in, is because you and I no longer have to hide sexuality with innuendo. There's not actually a benefit of being polite about sexuality anymore. That's how far we've advanced since the sexual revolution in our world, in our society. For example, I cannot think of a week in 2021, okay, we're at the halfway point, we're halfway to Christmas, if you didn't know that. I cannot think of one week where the Spotify top 10 list For our United States has not included a song that makes a clear, direct reference to sex, often going so far as to name and even describe the dimensions of sexual organs explicitly. And we just listen to it in the car. We pop our AirPods in and we walk around the mall blasting this stuff. We lift weights to it. We run to it. We eat to it. It's just normal for you and I. We don't need to hide our society's sexual obsession behind the polite winking and nudging of bull worship like the Egyptian people did. We no longer have to learn how to hint at our carnal intentions when we meet somebody who we're interested in at a bar or at a party. We can just tell them what we want. And oftentimes, it's the same thing that they're looking for. Some of us go so far as to sign up for dating apps having no intention of ever going on a date with anybody, not by any uh, historical definition of what a date would be. We are there to have our cravings satisfied, and everybody knows it. So, to give you some perspective, I believe in our society and in our culture the reason that I am sure that sexuality is an idol to us is because an individual's sexual knowledge and or sexual experience are now considered universal metrics for maturity. If you don't know about sex or sex acts or how it works or what it looks like or what it feels like or what you're good at or not good at or who can do what with who, when and how and what they need to do that, then you're considered a baby in our culture. It's like the last metric of maturity, and I'll just tell you, it's the worst one we've ever tried. We've tried money, that didn't work. We've tried power, that didn't work, so now we're going to try sex for a few hundred years and see if that leads us into maturity. It won't, but we can try it. Inside the church, purity culture, which is oftentimes our knee-jerk reaction to the over-sexualization of our culture, it demonizes normal biological milestones of puberty, normal teenage attraction. It demonizes the development of the human form into adulthood to the point that many of our boys believe that sex is some kind of panacea. It's some kind of thing that will heal and fix everything that's wrong with them, all of their immaturities, all of their character flaws. Those of us who've lived long enough know that that's not the case, that really it's just a loudspeaker that's going to amplify all of the junk that we're too immature to fix and address already. And on the other end of human sexuality, many of our girls inside the church grow up believing that if and when they have sex, even within the bounds of a biblical marriage with a Christian man, they will forever stain their reputation and damage their purity. I know married young women who are scared to death, who are physically frigid to their spouse from being told that it is their responsibility to manage the sexual appetites of the men around them. And that has started in their life since they were 11 or 12 years old, some of them, if they're early bloomers. And that may sound extreme to you, but I know the people who I'm speaking about. They have names, these are not broad hypothetical categories that I'm just espousing to you to prove a point. Those people have names and some of them are sitting next to you right now. This is a real problem. Outside the church, big surprise, things are no better, right? The modernization of the self, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we entered into the first idol the idol of identity the idol that represent that the nile represented we dealt with postmodernism the postmodern mind has to self realize it has to find within itself its value it can't derive its value from anything external religion family its work anything like that but this process has failed us so miserably we have failed so miserably at finding our value in our own selves or in our occupation or even in the spiritual reality of our eternal soul we have no idea what to do with that thing when we bump into it that our culture basically expects us to have decided by our twelfth birthday who we want to sleep with for the rest of our life. And if we haven't done that, then we're going to be told that we don't know our own identity. And if you haven't self-realized your way onto society's spectrum of sexuality, well, don't worry. All you need is an open mind and the world can offer you a buffet of potential sexual partners who will gladly dump 100% of their expectations and the full weight of their broken soul on you because they haven't found anywhere to put it, despite all of their claims to have finally found themselves. They haven't found anything but a dark pit with no bottom. So that's what the world is offering you. If you want to be deeply lonely, you should worship sex. You should think all the time about whether you have sex appeal. You should consider whether the people around you find you appealing or not. You should edit and tailor the way that you stand in photographs to make sure all of your angles and dimensions demonstrate sexuality to people you don't even know on digital media. That's what you should do. You will find the loneliness that you're looking for. But if you would like to be known, if you would like to be whole, if you would like to find the healing that you've supposedly been looking for by pursuing sex in any and every form or avoiding it outright fully, You should come to Jesus. That would be a solution for you. The reason that God is going after these idols is because Jesus cares about you. Jesus doesn't want you to participate in yet another sexual Ponzi scheme where you see some influencer who has several million more followers, half of which are paid robots, than you'll ever have, telling you that if you'll just take these pills or try this diet or do this 30-minute waist workout, that you'll have some kind of sex appeal. You're laughing because you've seen it. It's not really funny, it's tragedy. In the same way that it would break my heart to walk into the temple in Memphis and see the Apis bull, a living creature attributed with all of the deity of the male virility god Apis, to see people, children, three and four years old, exposed to the sexual organ of that animal, being told that that is the best and most pure example of the divine sexuality. It would ruin your day, your week, probably your year to witness that. Yet we are giggling our way as we doom scroll through Instagram and Twitter, and we're doing the same thing. So I'm not trying to condemn you, but it is my job to diagnose what's going on. It's my responsibility to tell you that we're not that different. We have electricity and cars and the internet now, but we are still bowing down and kissing the idol of sexuality. In some ways, more than we ever have before, the modernization of the self has led us to a point where we have to look inside ourselves, we think, and we have to find something that sets us apart from everybody else or we can't have an identity. Uniqueness has been valued over unity. And so we pick our sexuality. We decide that if we can figure out who we want to lay in a bed with and have sex with that we'll have found ourselves and it's a lie church I understand that you are human and so you are necessarily broken and because you are human I know that you are tempted at times to gratify your sexual appetite outside of a marriage covenant that doesn't make you different from other Christians in fact it probably just proves to you that you're human And if that's not you, if you're not a person who deals with this driving libido that you don't know what to do with, then you are at the very least exposed to a culture that is shouting at you at every opportunity that your body, especially the parts of your body that have historically been covered by clothing, is an asset. It's an opportunity that you have to build your bank account and your self-esteem, but it won't happen that way. Sex can't give you what it promises you. And because Jesus loves you, it causes him real pain to see you worship these kinds of idols. Sex as an idol or self-exploration-based sexuality, even sexual fluidity, they don't free us from anything. We believe that they will, but they in fact bind us. They force us, by defining ourselves around our sexuality, they force us to stay sexual We have no choice in the matter anymore. We can't go anywhere else. We can't find value in something else. The idea of celibacy is non-existent outside of the church. It doesn't exist anywhere. There's nobody who's abstaining. Nobody. When our identity is handcuffed to a deeply intimate act that requires another person in order to engage in, we are forcing ourselves to become humanists. We have to worship other people. If we can't be fulfilled, if we don't have the right kind of person to lay with us, if we can't be fulfilled, if we're not constantly, perpetually in this kind of relationship that we have self-defined, then that person is our God. And that's worse than almost anything. Even when an idea or an impersonal idol is our God, maybe then eventually grace breaks through. God breaks through that barrier and we turn our back on that thing. But when our God becomes a real living person and we become codependent on them, all kinds of mental illness and disability come with that kind of relationship. It is not only deeply painful and a bad idea, it is self-destructive. And that's why God didn't prescribe it that way. God does not lead us down paths that lead to self-destruction. We lead ourselves down those paths. So just quickly this morning, I have three ideas that I want to just communicate to you, and then we're going to land the plane. Three points that ideally will lead you from whatever broken sexuality you have right now, this moment, to Jesus, a person who can heal and fix those things. First, sex at its best is a shadow of Jesus' glory. Sex, like any other pleasure, any glimpse of glory that exists in creation is supposed to function as an appetizer for the glory of God, okay? And this is not going to get weird. Don't worry. I'm not going to make any weird and connections between God and sex. But if you've never thought about this before, just consider this. Consider how much better, how much more consuming and holistic the joy of God's presence in eternity will be for you with all of your broken human equipment out of the way. No longer having to try to hear the Spirit of God through two tin cans on the end of a string, but you'll just be with him. Imagine the purity of that, the uninterrupted connection between your soul, built from the ground up for ultimate pleasure in God's presence, and you'll be there. Yahweh himself will stand with you together. You'll be welcome into that. That's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about the glory of Jesus. I'm not just thinking of Jesus in clean clothes with his face washed. There is a soul-to-soul, deeply spiritual, eternal connection in play here that dwarfs anything you and I can have in any bedroom, at any resort, at any cabana, anywhere in the world. It doesn't exist. If your heaven is just a sparkly, clean version of earth, I don't want to go there. I want to be in God's presence. You can work on your golf swing and play harp all day. What I want to do is I want to take the fork of my soul and stick it in the light socket of Jesus' presence. And I want to ride that lightning for eternity. I mean, I'm serious. I want to experience the constant explosion and recreation of myself in the presence of God. The essence of divinity. The only person in all of human history who can actually make something new. Everything that you have spent your life trying to get is a reproduction of what God can do for you. It's just a copy. Like a bad day on the Antiques Roadshow. You don't want to get to the end of your life and find out that this is just a well-made copy in a factory somewhere else. Because that's what all your idols are. They're pumped out and produced to take your worship so they can take your money. That's what they want from you. God has something for you that is pure, that is unique. You could have an experience with God in eternity that no other individual soul will ever replicate exactly. If that is not the fullness of what you and I are grasping for in our sexuality, I don't know what is. To truly have that kind of intimacy. Sex can be that in some small ways according to God's prescription, in the bounds of marriage, but at its best, it's a shadow. Idea number two, your sexuality will flourish when it's framed by Jesus' intentions. Jesus made sex for you and I. He did it so that we could peek into eternity with him. He designed it, and I know that seems a little bit gross. This is one of the things I can't stand about that picture of, like, white Jesus with the feathered 1970s hair. You know what I'm talking about? He's got a little brown goatee a little bit of facial hair. He's like standing in a robe. That guy, I don't know who that is, but he seems like a prude. He seems like he's into like chastity belts and stuff, okay? That's not my Jesus. My Jesus built your body. He designed it. He put specific bundles of nerves in specific places. It is his intention, and I hope you'll hear this today, that you would actually enjoy the human multiplication process. It's not an accident. It isn't dirty or wrong to like that, Within its bounds, it is good for you. It leads you into a place where you go, if God gave me this now and I'm broken and you're broken and this is all broken and we're just doing our best, what more is there for us in eternity? That's the point that I already made. Jesus intends that we act sexually in a certain way. He designed this. He gets to weigh in on it. Um, Paul David Tripp wrote a book called Sex and Money. He says this about the reason that we struggle to view and participate in sex correctly on this side of eternity. One of the reasons that sex gets distorted and becomes something that God never intended it to be and ends up being hurtful, dark, and dangerous is this. Is that in this fallen world, sex is most often motivated by no larger purpose than the pleasure of the individual. And if you are 30 years old or older, you probably have experienced that. In other words, if sex is all about Jesus, then it can't just be about you. Paul Tripp's definition says that for most of us it is all about us. Jesus has a better way. This is where his intentions come into play. This is the foundational reason that we can never really self-realize our own sexuality. We can't really allow that. If we do, if we self-realize that sexuality for a little while, it can't really become the root of our identity. Think of it this way. If my identity is that I am first and foremost a lesbian or bisexual or transsexual or pansexual or heterosexual, if that's the most important thing about me, then what I am doing is I am trying to reach over from the driver's seat of my life and use the glove box to turn my car. It doesn't work that way. You would not be surprised if I'm flying down the road, getting ready to make a right turn, and instead of turning the steering wheel of my life, which is supposed to lead and guide me, I just went, hang on a second, and I just started pumping the glove box. If my car runs into a wall and explodes and I self-destruct, you're going to be sorry that happened, but you're not going to be surprised. If anything is leading my life other than my life in Christ, my identity in Jesus, then I am using the glove box to steer the vehicle. It's a part of the car, it's not the part that decides the direction that it goes. And that's not just true for sexuality. I'm not trying to pick on sexuality today. It's true for your bank account. It's true for the corporate ladder that you're climbing. It's true for anything else in your life that's not Jesus. But we've got to understand, God's not picking on us here. He built this thing so he knows how it works when it's going right. Sex can only be helpful, it can only be safe for us when our sexuality is framed by Jesus' intentions. It's by knowing Jesus. It's by expecting him to inform and protect our sexuality that our sexual identity, our sexual preferences, our sexual experience will suddenly synchronize. It will all begin to make sense for us. Your sexuality will flourish when it's framed by Jesus' intentions. Last thought here, thought three. If it's all about Jesus, and we seem to think that it is, then your sex life is part of your life in Christ. It doesn't make Jesus uncomfortable. Jesus isn't sitting with you in junior high Bible study going, Oh, <laughs> oh. Jesus is like, yes, talk about that. Do it more. Talk about it. Figure out how to do it the right way. Meet with somebody who knows more than you do. Pray together about it. Have a conversation in the bounds of marriage with your spouse about what's going on with you guys. Turn the lights on once in a while. Literally and figuratively. Bring this part of your life into the light. If you were were discipled the way that I was in my early teens then the root of your sexual experience, the earliest days of it were dark and they were in secret and you didn't want anybody to know about them. And if you've never dealt with that, then you shouldn't be surprised if that's still the way it is. If it still feels gross, if it still feels like a secret, if you could never imagine in life group ever even beginning to talk about this, which, hint, hint, here's where we're headed this week, okay? So you can go ahead and crack your knuckles and get ready, okay? We're gonna figure this out together. But if that seems so abstract and removed from your life, then I would argue that it's not yet been pulled into Christ's redemptive work for you. He's done the work. There's no question of that. But have you let it out of the box yet? Have you demonstrated to him that you believe that he does have a good and right intention for you? As human beings, we exist between what Jesus has already done for us and some of the spiritual realities of that work that have not yet arrived. So we say we live between the already and the not yet. Here's a few examples. Jesus already came, but the world has not yet been fully reconciled to him. We know because of Ephesians chapter one, verses seven through 10, we're on the road to that reconciliation, but it hasn't arrived yet, not yet. Jesus already, Redemption not fully yet here. We already have God's word, but sin is not yet extinct in humanity. We have the road map for how to live, but it's not as easy as simply reading it and everything gets better all the time. We already have the Holy Spirit of God in us, in our churches, yet we do not yet live with the eternal joy of Jesus. So that means that every sexual experience we will ever have is going to be sandwiched between our human brokenness, which is not yet fully redeemed, and Jesus' redemption, which is already here. That means that temptation and deceit and abuse and destruction still exist, even in our relationships, even in our sexuality. And so for this reason, navigating sex for every one of us requires us to manage our human urge to worship sex. We worship the things that have the most value, that are the most pleasurable to us. We begin to obsess over sex if we're not careful. And here's what we're believing when we do that. This is the lie of Satan. We believe that a physical act with another human being, or even alone by ourselves, can mend our spiritual and emotional wounds. That the physical pleasure of our body can reach into our soul and change us, and it isn't true. It's impossible. Jesus does teach a specific sexual ethic, but our only hope in living that ethic out for longer than about five minutes on a Sunday morning is our union with Christ. We have to be with Jesus. Otherwise, we can't do any of the things he told us to do. So for a second, I want to just talk to those of you who would say, Jesus is my Savior, he is my Lord. I claim him as that. I've pled for mercy from him and received it. I've bent my knee to him. He is my Savior. For those of us for whom all things are about Jesus, sexuality is just one part of our being. And in the same way that you've been able to trust Jesus with every other thing, I'm not saying it's been easy for you, but when you've you've gotten the gumption, to use a good East Texas word, to hand over a part of yourself to Jesus, hasn't he always handled it delicately? Has he ever been anything but kind to you? Has he ever been harsh? Has he ever come down? I'm not saying people in his name have probably done terrible things, and I apologize on their behalf because they probably never will. But Christ himself, in his presence, has the Spirit of God ever been anything but incredibly careful with you? Then know that if you've never brought your sexuality to him, you can and you have a guarantee that he will treat you with the same gentleness that he always has. I believe our sexuality can be life-giving. In the church. I believe that this is an area where we can demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be in step with Christ and still enjoy a thing that the world is obsessed with. What better way to break into the common thread of what's going on on social media and as a result in our American culture than to have something new and better and reliable to say about sexuality. I believe that it can be part of the light of eternity leaking into the world through the love of Jesus' people. And then finally today, if you are outside of Jesus' family, I hope that you can see that light. That's my hope for you. Jesus warns us because he loves us. Yahweh, the same God who gave his life for us, aggressively dismantled the gods of Egypt because he wanted to solve some of your problems. It's personal to you. In Jesus, we have a lover who is better than any human partner, one who loves not just parts of our body, but our soul. The most honest, central, essential part of you, Jesus can see it. He can feel the pits. He can feel the scars, he can feel the broken edges where you've been shattered, other people have ripped and torn away pieces of you, and Jesus wants all of it that's left, he really does, in a way that no human being can really want you. Jesus is not turned off, he's not upset about your sexual escapades in the past, he doesn't see you as less than anybody else because of the abuse that you've endured, the ways that people who were supposed to love you and protect you used you instead and then discarded you when they were done all the ways that you have tried and failed to fix the brokenness that lives in the deepest part of yourself. Hear me when I say to you that Jesus wants you to know him and he wants you to fully know him. At True North Church, we believe that we belong first to Jesus and then to each other, and that extends to our sexuality too. And so if you are standing in the doorway of Jesus' household today, figuratively, obviously we're all sitting in the same blue seats, but if you find yourself at the threshold, looking in from a dark street, seeing Jesus and his family gathered at the table, you saw the sign outside that says, all are welcome, but that just feels like a trap to you, right? All are welcome to do what? To become hyper-religious? To deny every part of their being? To lose things that are deeply valuable? To reveal their weaknesses and then be beaten and bullied and attacked for those weaknesses? Is that what it means to be welcome? No. God willing, you've been close enough to the table today to hear the conversation that we're having. To hear the grace and the mercy of Jesus for you. And my responsibility is to just say, come and join us. Even if you can't see and hear him, Jesus is waving you over to an empty seat at the table right next to him. You're welcome here. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how broken you are. There's always a seat for you. And so I'm going to pray for us. But I want you to know, if you are outside of Jesus' family and you're toying with the idea of coming in, I'm praying for you specifically right now. And I believe that most of the rest of us who are here are going to do the same thing because we care about you. And even if you're not sure if you want to come in, we're going to do everything we can to get you to join us. Not because we need to grow numerically, but because we want to share with you peace that we found. We finally found it. The Bible says it's like a man who found a treasure in a field on accident. He stubbed his toe on a box, he opened it, and there was more value than he'd ever found anywhere else. That's a common experience when we meet Jesus. We just stumble across this thing that's so incredibly beautiful that nothing else matters. And Scripture says that in response to that, a person will sell everything they have to buy the field just to have what's in that box. That's the exchange that Jesus is inviting you to make. Not to lose everything and to stay empty, but to lose everything so that your life can be filled finally to lose your limits, to lose your ceiling, to lose all of those bruises and abuses that keep you chained to your past. Jesus wants to bring you out of that, and I believe that he will. So I want to pray right now. If you guys would join me, I would appreciate it. Father, we say often to you that we love you, and in saying that, God, we communicate an intention to trust you. But when we start dealing with this kind of stuff, man, when we get down to the core of who we are, it can be very hard to do that. So I want to ask for grace and mercy first and foremost for this conversation, God, between you and us. As we consider your word, as we consider your actions, which seem so harsh, even in their context, to wipe out all of these animals, what are you doing? Why? Why not just send a really gifted preacher? Why not make a miracle another way? Why not just snap your fingers and bring everybody to repentance? God, I think we've seen this morning the danger and the deep-seated threat of mishandling each other and our own sexuality. So give us perspective, God, and then I pray that you would teach us humility, that we would find unity with you to be more valuable than any kind of unity with any kind of other person. We want to be known by you. We want to be near to you, God. I pray for the men and women, my fellow human beings who are simply fighting their way through life and doing their best. God, would you give them the grace to surrender today? As all of us who know you have had to do, would you give us... The, the belief, the faith, the Bible says it's a gift, God. Gift us with faith to believe that you can heal us. That we have finally today in this building, surrounded by a bunch of people we don't even know, we have found something buried that is worth giving everything away for. Show us your majesty and glory, God. We want to get out of the way. We don't want to block anybody from that. So we trust you. We, we say what we say to you. Knowing that you're listening, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.